I commend anyone who's able to be vulnerable about anything because putting down the armor that you've had since you were a kid is terrifying. Being that vulnerable, being that exposed is a terrifying thing to do. And yet it is the path to freedom. One of the things I love about Buddhism, there's this term that just speaks to me. It's unconditional freedom. It doesn't matter what condition, whether there's pleasure or pain, whether things are going the way you want or not, whether people like you or don't like you, you are unconditionally free wherever you go. And for me, what I realized I wanted is like deep freedom, freedom from fear, freedom from shame, freedom from craving. And that's like what I want to try to bring out into the world is like, hey, there's more to life than just money and validation and approval and success. There are things that genuinely are like leading to that sense of inner peace and inner well-being. Welcome to the Heart of Man podcast, a podcast for any man seeking to live in alignment with his deepest core and lead a life of profound meaning and connection. I'm your host, Alex Lehman, and I'm here to empower you through transformative conversations, eye-opening insights, and practical wisdom. Join me now as we venture into the heart of man. Let's dive in. All right, everybody. So in this latest episode, I had the great honor of inviting my new friend, Jeremy Lipkowitz, to the podcast. And I'm excited to share his work with all of you as he's working in a field that is, in my opinion, both relevant and absolutely necessary. Jeremy is a porn addiction recovery coach, a meditation teacher, and an expert on digital habits, and he's made it his mission to serve men in overcoming porn addiction so they can live with deeper purpose and in the process, reclaim their minds, learn to thrive in relationship, and live with deeper integrity. In his own personal journey, Jeremy had to confront his own addiction to pornography and his inner battles with shame, self-judgment, and depression. Coming into contact with Buddhist philosophy and mindfulness, he found a modality that was able to support him through his challenges. And for years, he ended up spending time living and training with ordained Buddhist monks in Myanmar. Along the process, he's found his way back to himself with a greater sense of meaning, fulfillment, and purpose. And with a background in genetics and genomics, he now combines a science-based approach with his deep passion for Eastern philosophy and mindfulness in order to support men in reclaiming sovereignty over their own minds so they can experience inner peace. Within our conversation, Jeremy and I specifically focused on the topic of pornography. It's becoming increasingly evident how the consistent consumption of porn can impact lives, yet I still see the conversation surrounding it remains limited. Having faced my own challenges with this issue and speaking to men on a regular basis around the topic of porn, I knew this was an essential conversation for us to have. But with Jeremy's expertise in the fields of neuroscience, I was interested to hear about the impact porn has on our lives and why it's so addictive. With his training in fields such as mindfulness and addiction recovery, we explored in depth what pulls specifically many men towards porn, but also how they may be able to break free from it. This was an incredibly illuminating conversation with some heartfelt and transparent shares out of our own personal lives. And I can't wait for all of you to listen into it. Without further ado, Let's dive on in. Jeremy, it's good to have you on the Heart of Man podcast. How are you feeling today? Doing well and very excited to be here. Yeah, man, super pumped. Uh, we're actually back for round two. We did some recording in the morning and uh, yeah, was really excited to have you as well on my podcast and um, speak a little bit about your journey and uh, what you're doing in the world. Um, yeah, just to give a bit of context for the listeners, uh, we connected a few months ago actually when um, I came into the launch of my podcast, started, you know, publishing some content around it and you reached out and, um, 
yeah, was curious to come into a conversation. And then I started as well looking into some of the work that you do and your, uh, well, I'm going to frame it as a porn addiction recovery coach. Is that how you frame it? Yeah. Cool. Right. So I, I started looking into some of your work. I started listening to some of the stuff that you say. And um, this is what you, this is what I as well said to you today. I really admire your holistic approach, right? There is this, um, you know, the porn industry is such a, you know, shadowed conversation within our culture currently. And yet at the same time, what, what I saw within you was approaching it from an angle of compassion and understanding and, and really coming from a place of understanding where, where like the people who are using it are coming from and actually supporting them through educating them versus demonizing it. Right. So this is something that, um, I really appreciate. Um, I would love to hear for our listeners. Can you share us your experience of how you got into this work and some of your own personal journey into this? Yeah. I mean, it, so it really is my own journey. You know, what got me into this line of work was my own addiction to porn. And, you know, I don't know how far back you want to go on this, but, you know, essentially when I was seven, eight, nine years old, I started looking at, it wasn't exactly porn at that time. It, you know, started as like the lingerie catalogs in the mail, um, comic book characters that were wearing, you know, like scantily clad outfits. And I just started getting into, you know, arousing myself with kind of illicit material. And that grew over time, you know, in middle school and high school, we got internet and I started looking at images that way. And by the time I got to college, there was high speed internet porn and I was looking at porn basically every night for about an hour, maybe two hours. Some nights could be even more than that. And it was in college when I really realized I had an addiction and went through my own healing journey. And that got me into a lot of other things that are very important in my life now around meditation and spirituality, and mindfulness, Buddhist philosophy. So it really was my own journey through porn addiction and learning how to break free from that addiction that brings me to the work today. Yeah. Was there a breaking point for you that really signified for you that here's a, there's a problem here and I got to change something? There were a couple of breaking points. You know, there were now looking back, I can see that there were multiple points in my life where I had these insights, these realizations that I was on the wrong path. Um, one of them was just realizing that my lust was more out of control than I realized. And this is something that I just talked about recently for the first time. Uh, it, it was just a, almost an innocent experience of realizing that I was objectifying women. And I thought I was being maybe sneaky about it. You know, the, the ways that we can look at a girl's butt or, or look down her blouse. And I thought maybe I was being sneaky about that behavior, but a friend called me out on it once. You know, this was in college, we were maybe 22 years old. And he said, dude, you've got a staring problem. And it was in that moment where I realized like, oh, oh, this is something that's actually an issue. That was the first little crack in, you know, in the armor. Um, a bigger turning point in my life was, I think I was around 23, 24 years old. I was in Davis, California. You know, my life was amazing. I was a stellar student, top of my class, setting the curve in all my exams, all my, my grades were excellent. I was captain of a sports team doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I had a lot of friends, like my life was amazing. And I remember walking down the street and I saw these two girls, they were probably like sophomores in college and they were walking in front of me. And I remember staring at the asses of the girls in front of me. And it was just this feeling of being 
consumed by lust. You know, just my whole body was taken over with this feeling of, I need to have that and I need to touch that. And unless I can have that, I won't be happy. And it was in that moment I realized a couple of things. One was realizing that it doesn't matter how much sex I have, how much good stuff happens in my life, I'll never be happy because I'm always looking at what I don't have. I'm always wanting something new, something more, something different. And I also realized something very interesting, which was that the experience of lust itself was a state of suffering. You know, this, this feeling of wanting something that you don't have is a state of, of lack. You're not in a state of contentment or gratitude or appreciation or abundance. You're in a state of emptiness. And that's what it felt like. It was like I was walking down the street and I saw their butts and I was like, I need that. And it was like this black hole opened up inside of me. And I realized if I keep going down this path, I'll never be happy. And I also saw into my future and I realized like, if I don't change something about how I'm living, I'm going to end up some perverted old man trying to pick up girls at college bars. You know, it's like I saw that reality for myself and I realized that's not the life I want to live. Yeah. Wow. This is so powerful. And thank you as well for sharing it so explicitly. Like it's, it's really interesting, right? Because, you know, this phenomenon of lack and, and, and not enoughness, right? Like, I mean, for you, it expressed itself in porn, but I mean, it can express itself in so many other ways, right? This hungry ghost phenomenon where it's like, we're constantly looking out for something to fill ourselves, right? And it's like, it, it is the thing that guided and directed me for the most of my life. So, um, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners here can relate to that. And this is something I definitely want to go more into uh, as we go along the conversation, just to hear how as well we navigate that as it arises. But uh, I would love to go a little bit deeper into the conversation around pornography with you, right? And I guess the first thing I want to just speak into, you know, the porn industry is one of the fastest growing industries in the world at the moment, and it's it's highly addictive. Um, perhaps I'd love to just hear from your perspective and your frame. Um, why is it growing so fast? Why is it so addictive? And um, yeah, perhaps you can just speak a little bit as well around, because um, I know as well you go into the neuroscience about it. So I think that would as well be something that would be really interesting to go into. Yeah. So I guess for a bit of context, my background is in, in the sciences in genetics and genomics. I was working on a PhD at Duke University in genetics and genomics. And so what really interested me in these subjects was understanding neuroplasticity and understanding that every time you log on to porn, you're hardwiring in these neural pathways. Mm -hmm. Whatever what you're neuroplasticity, doing. just for our listeners. Yeah. So neuroplasticity, it's the understanding that we now have that your brain is constantly changing and forming new connections throughout your life. So it used to be believed that you know, your brain developed when you were a teenager, when you were a young kid and teenager, and then around adulthood, you stopped developing new neural pathways and you kind of were set. And that's what we used to believe. But in the past 20 years, we have this new understanding that our neurons are constantly evolving. We're constantly forming new connections, strengthening different pathways that we're using and de-strengthening pathways that we don't use. And this is something that goes on throughout our life. And what that means is that what you do with your mind and with your attention is strengthening those behaviors. So if you're constantly thinking angry thoughts, you're strengthening the neural pathways associated with anger. If you're constantly thinking thoughts of 
lust and objectification and craving, you know, you're strengthening the neural pathways. So neuroplasticity is just this important understanding that, you know, your brain is always developing and what you do has an impact on you. What was your other question about this? I spoke to how the porn industry is one of the fastest growing industries right. and it's highly addictive. And yeah. I'd love for you just to speak to that and the yeah. perspective on it, why that is the case. There's a lot of reasons why the porn industry is growing and why it's so addictive. Um, some have to do with just our physiology, how we're hardwired, and then some are more cultural, societal. So from a purely physiological perspective, we are sexual beings and our sexuality is a huge part of who we are. And it's a beautiful part of who, of who we are. But it's also just one of these strong, primal, driving forces. And so when you can tap into that, you know, that's a strong motivator, a strong driver. And so the porn industry directly taps into that aspect of who we are, you know, our, our sexual energy, our sexual drive. So that's one reason is it's just a very primal energy to tap into from, from the start. The other thing is like, there's a couple reasons why porn specifically is so addictive. There's something that we call the three A's of porn addiction. And it's these three qualities of porn that make it highly addictive. So it's the accessibility, mm. the affordability, and the anonymity. Mm. <laughs> so it's highly accessible. Everyone has a smartphone. You can get it anywhere you want, essentially. I mean, any 10-year-old kid can get porn in three seconds if he wants to. So it's accessible. It's affordable. And in the case of porn, it's 99% free. You can pay for it if you want, and we can talk about that later. But it's, for the most part, free. And it's also anonymous. So it's very easy to do in secret. It's very easy to do without anyone knowing. In contrast to alcohol, like you have to go to the store and buy alcohol. You have to go to a bar and order a shot. Porn, you can go into your room, lock the door, and nobody has to know. So you can keep it secret very, very well. So the accessibility, the affordability, and the anonymity all contribute to this perfect storm of making it a very addictive substance. On top of that, there's a lot of money behind it now. Like you said, it's one of the fastest growing industries. I heard a statistic once recently that the porn industry makes more money than all of the major sports leagues in the US combined. So the NFL, the NBA, Wild. MLB, all of those combined, porn is still a bigger industry. So it's just a huge kind of machine and there's a lot of incentive behind it. And then on top of that, we're living in an age where for the most part, we're very disconnected from a sense of purpose or meaning or something greater than ourselves. You know, for better or for worse, we're, we're less of a religious society now. For me, that's, you know, I've never been a religious person. I've never been a believer. And the downside to that is that we tend to live in a bit more of a materialistic kind of selfish society. Mm. When you take away that sense of purpose, that sense of living for the greater good, people tend to distract themselves with pleasure. And that's one of my favorite quotes we talked about earlier from Viktor Frankl, that when man doesn't have a sense of purpose, he distracts himself with pleasure. Yeah, absolutely love that. Yeah. So there's a lot of reasons why porn is as addictive as it is today. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, of course, I just as well related to my own personal experiences with porn, and, and this is something as well we, we spoke about, and, you know, I, I as well work with numerous men as well on the topic of pornography. It comes up as well in the one-on-one coaching that I do. And often what I notice as well, what's underneath it is some form of feeling 
or maybe a pain point that we're not willing to address or we don't even know is there. Yeah. Um, can you speak a little bit more about why are people drawn to porn and yeah, what is pulling them consistently back to it? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because with every addiction, it's an attempt to escape pain, an attempt to regulate and kind of medicate away pain that we're feeling. So whether you're addicted to porn or junk food or Netflix or work, it's all this attempt to get away from some pain, that, some underlying pain that you don't know how to deal with. And porn happens to be a very convenient way for a lot of people because, mm. again, it taps into that sexual drive. Also, a lot of the pain that people are experiencing today, and I can speak for myself and for many men, and for many people in general, this lack of connection that we feel, you know, the lack of real intimacy in our life, real connection with other people. And porn almost gives a sense of getting intimacy. Like you feel like you're getting some intimacy, even though it's actually making it worse. It's exacerbating it. It's like if you're thirsty and you drink salt water, mm. And you're like, you're like oh, I need something to, to deal with this thirst, but it actually makes it worse. Mm. And so this lack of connection that we're experiencing, the, the isolation that many men are experiencing is causing them to reach out to porn. Mm. Curious, is that what was specifically happening for you, what you were tending to? I think for me, you know, if I were to look back in my childhood, all, we talk in the addiction world a lot about trauma and how a lot of addiction comes from trauma. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about the word trauma. You know, a lot of people have this preconception around trauma that it has to be this capital T trauma, mm. some really intense single event like sexual abuse or a parent leaving or, you know, something very intense and momentous. But trauma can also be the lowercase t trauma. All the different ways that we didn't get our needs met when we were kids. You know, if we were felt abandoned, if we were teased or bullied, it can be these small moments from our life where we were experiencing pain and, and we didn't know how to deal with it. So for me, it was all the normal lowercase t trauma. There wasn't some big event. It was just the ways of, you know, that it's hard to be a kid in the world and you're not necessarily equipped to deal with it. Yeah. And so the ways that I dealt with that, with the loneliness, the insecurity, the anxiety, the self-judgment, you know, I, I was teased for being a little bit pudgy when I was a kid. And so then I always had this kind of anxiety and insecurity around that. And so the ways that we can reach out to these substances to make ourselves feel better. For me, it was, it was more around that. Right. Yeah, and I imagine just a lot of men as well like can relate to that. And I wonder if, if, if that's what actually makes it more insidious because you don't necessarily know where to look within your life and what happened and to as well address some of the pain because the sense as well I have with some of the things that I speak of with my clients is, you know, they have normalized their experience so deeply that they don't even notice the moments of neglect that they experienced, the moments of pain that was actually there. And it actually takes a moment for them just to really settle into, wow, like I actually didn't get my needs met and I didn't have a space here to speak up and I didn't have a moment here to communicate. And I didn't even know that that was available, right? And so it's like they get maybe hardwired as well into these coping mechanisms where they're more shy or they're not speaking up and all these things. It, it just becomes a way of, who they believe themselves to be, um, 
which only exacerbates those coping mechanisms, I imagine, right? Yeah, definitely. And all the ways, particularly for men, that we we don't have healthy role models for how to express our emotions when we're younger. You know, to just admit like, oh, I'm feeling lonely or I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling hurt. These are things we don't really learn how to do unless later on in life we realize that this is important work for us to do it. You know, the work that you're doing, the work in the men's space is really critical there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sp speaking specifically as well to what's happening for men, I feel as well, a lot of the conditioning as you kind of start speaking into, like that we have been imposed on and on how we should be, it actually negates, you know, the challenges that we have, right? It's like, we have those moments when we get hurt, when we feel sad, when we feel, when we felt angry, right? But if we've never been given a place for that, where that can be like expressed in a healthy way, nor have given been given guidance or structure around how to tend to that, those parts of us, we need to find ways of how to address that. We, we need to find ways of how to soothe ourselves, right? And so that was as well where and porn really came in for me. It was this desire, this attempt to soothe myself from the loneliness that I felt, from the lack of connection, from the boredom at times, from the lack of purpose, from the shame, the grief, the, the sadness, like all of it, you know? And it, yeah, I think, you know, you described it beautifully with the three A's. It was just so easy. It was so easy. Yeah. Right. And I wasn't aware of the impact that it was having on my life until further down the line. Yeah. And just to kind of bring a little bit more kind of nuance to that question of why is porn so addictive, a couple other things that contribute to that is one, it's highly normalized. And so we don't think of it as an addiction. We don't even think of it as a substance, even though it is. I mean, it's a substance that you consume through your eyes. Right. It's acting on the same neural networks as any other substance you might ingest. So it's normalized. And then the other thing is like, we just don't realize the impact that it's having because many of the effects of it are subtle and long-term. With a lot of other drugs that we might take, we feel the consequences more instantly. You know, if you have a heavy night of drinking, the <laughs> next morning you wake up and you feel like shit and you feel hungover and it feels like you know where that's coming from. With porn, a lot of the negative consequences are long-term. They're downstream, maybe, maybe a year, maybe five years, and they build up subtly over time, like drop by drop. They're slowly changing who you are and changing how you're relating to the people in your life. Mm. And so it's these longer term things that are harder to pick up on and realize that it's a problem. Yeah. You know what I'm interested to hear a bit more about, you know, and I, I haven't heard you speak about this, but I wonder as well where, like, I wonder if there is as well an impact on excessive masturbation, even if we don't use porn, right? Because it's like, like when I, when I heard you speak, one of the things as well that comes alive for me is, Sometimes I go into an exploration with my clients and if like usually I don't have clients with heavy porn usage, but it is an impact in their lives. And sometimes I just offer them try an experiment, you know, where it's like for one week, you don't use it and you as well don't engage sexually with yourself and just see how you feel in your body without, you know, releasing yourself into, into the pleasure of that and just seeing how you feel. Mm -hmm. And usually they will feel an impact from that experience that they didn't have before because they were so normalized in using both of those as access points excessively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this gets into a, 
a lovely but also complicated discussion um, because there's there's different paths you can go down and there's no wrong way or right way. So for example, the topic of semen retention, which is a thousands of years old practice and has tons of benefits to to intentionally learn how to work with those energies, to conserve those energies, to transmute them into other aspects of your life, that can be a really beautiful practice. At the same time, it can also be a, a beautiful practice to learn how to have a healthy relationship with sexuality and with masturbation that's not being influenced or poisoned by porn. So for example, what I do with my clients is the approach I have is I let them I say, masturbate as much as you want, as long as you're not using porn. Because the analogy I like to give is it's very hard to overdo it on masturbation without porn. It's like binging on fruit. Like it's very hard to overdo it on fruit versus binging on cookies and you know candy bars and potato chips. Potato chips, candy bars, cookies, you can weigh or you would just keep eating even when you're totally full. If you're just eating fruit, after a while, like after 10 oranges, you're not going to keep going, right? And so both of those are interesting approaches and, and maybe trying both, you know, for someone listening to this, like try it out and see what it's like to do 30 days of semen retention. See what it's like to, to let yourself masturbate and have that relationship with your sexuality that's not being influenced by pornography. Mm. The one thing I want to point out just as a side note for it, practices around semen retention they're beautiful but again just to be very mindful of repression and suppression because this is one of the big things that drives addiction is this feeling of this is bad my sexuality is bad or you know i need to suppress this desire and so it needs to be done with a lot of skill like when you do this retention practice to do it from a place of let me channel this energy my sexual energy is not bad it's beautiful and I'm going to channel it and, and transmute it into something powerful mm. as opposed to, you know, don't look at porn, don't masturbate, this is bad. Uh, and it's like a very, it's like a battle within yourself. Yeah. Because a lot of the work of overcoming addiction is learning how to be, you know, come to a place of acceptance of your sexuality and appreciation of it. I love that, man. It really comes back just to having a healthy relationship to it, you know? And um, I mean, when I started getting more into this work I noticed how a lot of it was just being demonized you know and um, you know I, I was receiving all these narratives around you know porn is bad and then because I was using it I felt like a bad person and then all the shame started kicking in in me right and then I was starting to have a battle within myself which only exacerbated that I felt like I needed some way to soothe myself because now I'm like being hit by myself with all the shame that I don't really know how to tend with um yeah, man, I, I really love as well that what you expressed to that. And one of the things that really supported me as well, like I, I received some guidance on that. And um, I was as well communicated around like changing the context in which we engage with ourselves sexually. Mm -hmm. And one of them could be, for example, changing the context from masturbation to self-pleasure and seeing what that would feel like and actually like some of the structures I've been provided is remove a goal and don't have it be solely centric towards the genitals mm. and actually explore it as something where you explore touch just with yourself, right? And actually like expanding and moving the touch towards different parts of your body. And there was something about it that actually 
normalized that experience for me and actually normalized pleasure where I didn't feel shame about it anymore. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I'm curious to hear, like, you know, I feel like we're starting to as well weave into the topic of shame. So I want to hear, yeah, tell me a little bit more about how shame plays in with the usage, usage of porn. Yeah, shame is such a an interesting topic. And and I'd love to actually to make sure that we talk about toxic shame and also talk about healthy shame. Because I think it's something in the men's space, we talk a lot about shame and how toxic it can be and, and how we need to let go of shame, which is a thousand percent true. What doesn't get talked a lot about is what the role of healthy shame is. And so I want to make sure we, we touch on that. But first, just talking about toxic shame. Because toxic shame is such a driver of addiction, which is toxic shame is this feeling like we are a bad person, like we are broken and we can't be loved. And if people saw what we were doing, you know, they would think we're some pervert or whatever it is, they would kick us out of the tribe. And that kind of shame, it keeps us isolating. We, we isolate ourselves from the tribe, from loved ones, because we don't want to be seen. And we end up hating ourselves. And like you said, it's like a, a downward spiral into the addiction. When we feel shame, we don't know how to be with that. And so we want to escape it into our coping mechanism. So we act out with porn or whatever, which then leads to more shame. So it's a downward spiral that can be really hard to get out of. In particular around sex, for some reason, sex is one of the most shameful aspects of, of our human nature. And I don't know why, but it's like, I'm not a religious person, but I find it interesting that in the story of Adam and Eve, one of the very first things that they do is they cover up their genitalia. Mm. There's this kind of inherent, oh, this is wrong. This we need to, it's on page like two of the Bible, right? like shame, right? right? And so it's just interesting to notice how much shame there is around sexuality. Like it's, it's one thing for a person to admit that they're a former alcoholic or dealing with a, a drug addiction, it's very hard for somebody to open up and admit, hey, I'm a sex addict or I'm a porn addict because there's this feeling like, oh, that means I'm a pervert. Mm. People will think I'm dangerous or unclean. There, there's something about it that's very shameful. And learning how to let go of toxic shame and make space for your humanity and your sexuality is so important in all of the aspects of men's work, not just around porn addiction, but around anything that we're experiencing, loneliness, anger, frustration, insecurity, like to be vulnerable and to not be ashamed to say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with this. So that that's the component of working with toxic shame and, and why it's so important to let go of that. The topic of healthy shame is also really important. And so for me, Buddhism is a big part of my practice. I spent time as a monk, going on retreats was very important to me. And so a lot of my understanding, you know, comes from these Buddhist teachings. And there's this really interesting teaching in Buddhism. A lot of Buddhism is around mental qualities, like cultivate these wholesome mental qualities, the ones that lead to happiness and stop cultivating the mental qualities that lead to suffering, like greed and hatred and delusion. And what's interesting is all of the wholesome mind states that are important to cultivate are pleasant they feel good to experience. So compassion, loving kindness, patience, equanimity, these are all things that are wholesome and they're good to experience and they feel good in the moment. But there's two exceptions. There are two mind states 
that are wholesome, meaning they're good things to cultivate, and they're unpleasant to experience. Hmm. And they're called the two guardians of the world, the two protectors of the world. And what they are is moral dread and moral shame. Hmm. That these are actually wholesome qualities that we need to experience. And they're unpleasant, but they're unpleasant on purpose. They protect us from doing harmful things. So moral shame is when we've done something wrong, that unpleasant feeling is actually wholesome because it keeps us from doing it again. It's like, oh, I, I really hurt someone with my sexuality and that hurts and I don't want to do that again. That's healthy shame. Moral dread is, is kind of similar, but it's when we're thinking about doing something unskillful and we have this fear of, oh, if I do this and people find out, you know, they won't like me or whatever. That fear is unpleasant. But it's again, it's a protector. It keeps us from doing harmful things. So I, I really love to bring that in because it's important to understand like a little bit of shame is actually really important. When you've done something unskillful, it's like to let yourself feel that heaviness, you know, like, ah, oh, that hurts. I love that, man. And it, it's so interesting how we're so in sync with each other because this is something as well I communicate um, with my clients when we address this topic of shame and something as well that I speak into that shame, when healthy shame, when we feel it, it actually inspires us towards humility. Whereas toxic shame actually inspires us towards feeling humiliated. Mm -hmm. right? So it feels like the huge, like very distinct differences and actually healthy shame inspires us to stay in connection to it actually brings us into a state of belonging right whereas when we feel humiliated we want to isolate right we, we feel like we're this autonomous being that is disconnected from everything else right and um yeah i guess the th tricky thing that as well arises with that is you know shame can of course you know kick in and modulate our behavior in such a way that we then as well cultivate these narratives that we are bad, right? So that's kind of where the toxic shame cycle gets kicked in when we're maybe implicitly being told, like being shamed ultimately, right? Yeah. For our experiences, for what we're doing, for who we are, where a lot of that toxic shame and internalized shame can can really be cultivated, right? Yeah. Yeah, but I guess having, like being able to actually feel shame and allowing that as well to be a part of the experience, um, that is definitely something really, really powerful. Yeah. And dress. I like to use the word remorse because yeah. I think remorse is a topic that we don't talk, you barely hear remorse, like, uh, yeah. but it's such an important thing. It's like this recognition of the ways that we haven't been our best selves, mm. where we, we have screwed up and we have kind of done things to harm people or harm ourselves. And the remorse around that is, is this striving to do better and to be better. It's like, oh yeah, I, I did really fuck up and I want to be better. And that remorse, again, is onward leading. It's motivating. It's like, yeah, yeah I, I want to be a better man. And it's like, it has to have this fine line with uh, compassion, right? Because what I s often see is the reason why a lot of men don't want to go into shame is because they'll beat the shit out of themselves when they go into shame, mm -hmm. right? So there isn't that compassionate approach that yeah. is coupled where they can, they can come into an acceptance of this, like, I hurt this person. This feels really painful. Um, we can come into an understanding that we, we probably did the best that we could in that moment with the circumstances and everything, how it 
has arisen. That is not denying, of course, the impact of that. And we want to take responsibility for maybe modulating our behavior or um, acting better in the future, right? But uh, I think that compassion, whilst having that dedication towards something greater or a, a better approach for the future is, is absolutely essential. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I love this conversation in so many ways. And you spoke into the this theme of lust and you spoke as well about craving. And um, this is as well kind of like when I hear those two words, I feel as well a lot of shame. And I wonder as well how it plays in with desire. You know, like this is something that I'm really interested in. And this is something like, like when I got into this journey, I initially was as well very influenced by Buddhism. And it was really supportive for me to hear about, you know, concepts like equanimity and um, exploring that dance between cra craving and aversion. Mm -hmm. But it was, I noticed this internal conflict in me because it was like, shit, I have desires. I have so many desires. And I, I felt like I needed to feel shame for having so many desires. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, you, you, you lined it up perfectly and it's, you already answered the question. Essentially, there's a difference between lust and desire. And they're very important because it's a big misconception. A lot of people, they get into Buddhist meditation and they think, oh, desire is bad. Desire is the root of suffering. And it's not. Lust is the root of suffering. But there's a very distinct, clear difference between lust and desire. Desire is just, you know, there's so many healthy desires. And desire is a beautiful part of being human. So there's very like spiritual desires, like the desire for world peace the desire to be free from suffering, the desire to be a compassionate person. These are healthy desires. Like we want to have a direction and these are, are great things. There's also kind of the, the more physical desires. Like I have a desire to, to eat food that tastes good. That's great. I have a desire to, to look at an attractive woman. Wow, I desire her. That's okay. Lust is this very narrow, narrowly focused, constricted thing. And it's behind lust is this feeling of i need to have that and if i don't i can't be happy mm. and it's the same with aversion like aversion is this feeling of i need this to be out of my life and if it's not out of my life i can't be happy unless it's gone i won't be happy and those aren't necessarily the words that are actually going through your mind it's the feeling behind it it's you know when i was talking about my experience of walking down the street this feeling was just totally hyper-focused, constricted, you know, like tunnel vision. You can't see anything else and you're just focused on that, having that thing and almost obtaining it. And that's lust. Lust is this state of suffering where unless you have that thing, you can't be happy. But desire is beautiful. And so understanding that difference is really, really important there. Man, I love how you described it in this way and just normalizing as well that, and of course, this is as like in many ways a, understanding that I've come to with myself because when I feel the genuine desire within myself, it actually does feel like beautiful. It feels expansive. I feel good when I feel that desire, but when there is that sense of, I need that thing, otherwise I'll be miserable uh, if I don't have it, yeah. then like that's when I notice, okay, there's something maybe to just to look at yeah. myself. Yeah, and that's where addiction is. It's like if you're sitting there and all you can think of is like, I need my fix of sex, of porn, of junk food. I need it, you know? That's the the craving yeah. that we talk about in Buddhism. Yeah. 
Can we speak about some of the impacts of pornography and, and using pornography over a long, longer period of time? You mentioned that, um, you know, they exacerbate over a longer period. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to hear what are some of those impacts and um, to watch out for? Yeah, gosh, there's so many. I mean, we could do a two-hour episode just on this. There's kind of two buckets to look at. One is the the interpersonal kind of, um, you know, the how we are with other people and with ourselves, And then there's the intrapersonal what's going on with ourself and let's, our relationship. Let's go with the one with, with ourselves first. Yeah. I would love to hear as well how it interplays in relationships. Yeah, relationships. So in terms of ourself, there's some of, you know, there's, there's again, it's like there's buckets within buckets. Some of them are more around our ability to focus and concentrate, what it does to our dopamine networks, our dopamine signaling, our ability to take joy in the simple things. Because porn is a hyper-stimulus. It's this thing that we never came across on an evolutionary time scale, it, its ability to push our dopamine button is unrivaled. You know, like there's very few other substances that can do this to us mm -hmm. because most other substances, we hit a point where you can't just keep pressing the button. So for example, potato chips. At some point you feel sick from eating too many potato chips and you have to stop. Same with alcohol. At some point your body like shuts down. Same with many other drugs, there's a, a limit. With porn, because there's an infinite variety of porn and an infinite escalation of more and more extreme things, people can literally sit there for 12 hours just clicking on new videos because you can keep hitting that dopamine button. And so what that does to your dopamine signaling, which is involved in your motivation, your ability to, to seek out things, to challenge yourself, to take pleasure in things, it really limits your ability to take joy in the simple things in life, which is very painful. It's one of the things that a lot of the listeners will relate to is this feeling of everything in your life can be amazing, but you don't feel like it means anything. That there's no way to like actually appreciate what's going on because you're always looking for something more extreme, mm. you know, that, that distraction, that hit of excitement. Mm. So that's one of the ways it can impact you. If I can just add one thing here that I found to be very fascinating. Did you ever read the book Dopamine Nation? Yeah, analytic. Yeah. Super fascinating book. But what I found is that, you know, it, there's kind of like this uh, modulator between pain and pleasure. So if, you know, as an example, if we have some form of addiction and we're seeking pleasure and we have that high experience of high, we'll have an equivalent low to modulate that experience within ourselves. It's as well the um, same the other way. If we're going into an experience of pain, there is going to be um, some form of experience of pleasure yeah. to to balance that out again. But if we're in a constant pursuit of the high, we will feel that pleasure, which then again, of course, brings us into a place where we want to bring more of a high, which makes it so damn insidious. Yeah. And that's exactly it. And it's you know, the more pleasure we're seeking, these these more and more extreme highs, the more pain we're actually going to experience in our life. And it's why there's many benefits to things like intentionally going into difficulty, like ice baths, doing a hard workout, doing something challenging and difficult, where you feel, you know, that discomfort. Because what that does is it helps you regulate and you come back to a healthy balance. So again, some of these uh, intrapersonal things, it's like the ability to take joy in little things, the ability to focus and to actually get work done versus your mind just like constantly going off to sex, sex, sex. So those are a couple of the things. Also what it can do 
in terms of your relationship with yourself, this is something I hear from a lot of guys is if you're constantly watching porn, there can be a lot of self-judgment about your body, you know, different aspects of your body, your ability to perform in bed. Mm. A lot of insecurities can come from constantly looking at, you know, these porn stars, which is a fantasy. So there's that. It's also kind of what it does to, this is a bit more in the relationships, but our expectations of other people and what other people should be looking like. Um, a final thing that comes up for a lot of people is just being out of integrity. You know, when you know that you're engaged and watching something that feels like it's off in terms of your values, maybe it's there's, you know, violence towards the women in the videos that you're watching, or maybe the videos you're watching, you might not know, but it's it might be related to sex trafficking. And the people in those videos might not be willing participants. And so when you're out of integrity in that way and you're hiding your behavior, you're lying to your loved ones in order to, to act out, that can cause a lot of internal harm as well. You know, just the, the inner turmoil that comes from living a double life. A lot of people with addiction, it's like they hide that behavior and they have to live a double life. They have to hide it and pretend it's not there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the last one hits deeply as well for me because I can, I can definitely relate to that. I can remember from the first like times when I would go there, how like just a feeling of this is not right. This doesn't feel good. This is out of integrity. And, you know, over the years consistently going back into that, you know, that was something that was just so incredibly painful for me. Um, and yeah, it, it led to a loss of self-respect, mm -hmm. you know, which I as well hear with a lot of men. Right? Yeah. There's a sense of loss of respect, but loss of as well, competence and confidence and in themselves, you know, because it's like, they know they don't want to do this thing, but they don't know how to change it. Right. And mm -hmm. it's like, and because it's so ashamed and like fueled, they can't talk about it, which yeah. makes it even harder. Right. All right. The isolation. Yeah. It's hard to get, get support for it. Mm -hmm. And just on that note, from the time when I realized I had a problem and then I broke free, it, it took me another six years before I could tell anyone that I even watched porn. Yeah. Like my shame was so strong. Mm. I never wanted to let anyone know that I looked at porn. Mm. Yeah. Well, I want to take a note of that and then like get on that a little bit later. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to hear how does the long lasting use of porn impact uh, relationships, whether it's, you know, with like friends or, but specifically intimate relationships. Yeah. I think that's something I'd be really interested in. Well, first, kind of uh, taking a step like in between the intrapersonal and interpersonal, there's like the self and then there's how it impacts the relationships. The bridge between that is also impacted in the sense of if you're a single man and you're looking to be in a relationship and you're constantly giving your energy into porn, that's just going to be limiting you from, from your time, your energy, your resources, and your motivation. You know, so that's already something to consider. Like, if you really want to be in relationship, but you're giving an hour of your night and a lot of your sexual energy and your drive and your motivation into that, that's going to have an impact on your life. But in terms of how it actually impacts actual relationships, there's again, so many ways in terms of how it changes our expectations of the other person. You know, if someone is engaged in constant porn use, 
they're rewiring their mind to think that what they're seeing in porn is healthy intimacy and they're rewiring it to think this is what my partner wants and women know you know they can feel that when they're with a man that is treating them as if they're in a porn video as opposed to being really connected and being really present you know a, a woman can feel that when a man is genuinely present for her in that interaction versus when he's lost in his head just trying to reenact his favorite porn scene and so that can really have a lot of damage on intimacy a lack of attunement yeah a lack of attunement you're not really there for the other person they feel like they're with a stranger in the room or like a, with a ghost just this body that's humping them right so there's that it can also just prevent intimacy from happening at all because again if a man is giving all his sexual energy into porn and masturbation he doesn't have any left for his partner so there's that and then there's also sexual dysfunction you know erectile dysfunction and delayed ejaculation are big issues that come from porn so there's so many ways that it can impact it also again from the female side if it's different for every relationship and you know we're talking here from the perspective of a heterosexual couple man and woman but this is going to be true for any kind of uh dynamic you're in when someone knows you're engaged in a lot of porn they tend to feel more insecure about their own body and their own performance because again they know that you're looking at 20 year old porn stars every night and so the studies show that you know that that for couples where the man is engaged with with porn they feel the man feels less satisfied with his partner and less sexually interested in his partner and the woman tends to feel more insecure so there's a lot of damage and for some women you know if a man uses porn it's also it feels like cheating mm. and so that's something to know as well mm. yeah thanks man and it just felt really important as well just to speak into that and yeah just as well for men to hear you know how that may as well be impacting their relationships and um yeah man so when you're working with a man on porn i'm curious to hear how you start navigating that topic and that um yeah that habit within their lives yeah there's really a few key pillars to recovery that are important the very first one is is letting go of the shame you know you have to let go of that sexual shame you have to learn how to accept your sexuality and, and come into a healthier relationship with sexuality that's so important um, so that's one of the key pillars another is looking at how habits are actually formed so one of the interesting things a lot of people think if they want to break free from a habit they just have to try harder use more willpower Power, yeah. you know white knuckle it and just i'm gonna stop this time this is this is it i'm gonna stop i'm gonna try really hard and it just doesn't work we know from all the studies of behavior change and habit change that willpower is a, a finite resource and you can't rely on it to change your habits so some of the work i do with my my clients is really educating them on proper behavioral change you know what are the more systematic structural things you need to do in your life to actually give you some breathing room to to break free and actually have some breathing room once you have that breathing room then it's a question of actually deeper recovery which is if you just give yourself the breathing room that's not going to be enough because you haven't addressed the underlying issue mm -hmm. that caused you to be addicted in the first place yeah what's the underlying pain or the underlying mechanisms 
that are going on that's causing you to run away and to seek an escape. And this is illustrated really well with something called the Rat Park Experiment. Have you heard of the Rat Park Experiment? Yeah. Yeah, yeah fuck. I tell it all the time because I, I just love it. It's it's so important to understand. Absolutely. So for, for the people listening, you know, they were studying the effect of morphine and addiction back in the 1960s or 70s. And so they were giving these rats morphine water, you know, water laced with morphine. And they found that the rats would just sit there and drink the the water basically until they died. They were so addicted, they would just sit there and they wouldn't run, they wouldn't go get food. They were really addicted. But this one researcher had this really interesting insight and he said, well, they live in these really sterile environments, these you know cold metal cages, they don't have any friends, there's no running wheels for them to exercise on. What if we give them a more natural environment where they're happier and they have things that they can do? So they, what's interesting is they actually, they force fed them the morphine, they, they got them addicted first, and then they placed them in these rat parks. So they, they actually made them addicts first and then put them in the rat park. And they found out that after they put them in the rat park, the rats barely touched the water. They went back to their normal healthy lives. It was still there, it was an option. They weren't addicted. And what it shows is that when you're living a happy, fulfilling life, addiction doesn't have anything to grasp onto. And that if you really wanna break free from addiction, it's about cultivating a more meaningful life, a fulfilling life where you have friends, where you're physically active. You know, it's all these different components of a good life. And so in the work I do with my clients, it's it's really about how can we help you cultivate a life that feels deeply fulfilling. That's the ultimate work of recovery. And that includes a lot of things, physical health, social connection, time for solitude and stillness, spirituality. There's all these different components. And it's going to be different for each person, but some way of cultivating a deeper life. I feel called to ask you a little bit more about the value of community, the value of just relationship and how that can kick in. Because I think as well, one of the things that I've always seen in my journey when lust or craving arises, as you say, it's that tunnel vision. And then this objectification from with people arises and I'm not in relationship with people anymore. And a big part of my journey is becoming more relational, right? And it has been. And I'm, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. So there's a couple components to it. One is the way that we can when we're engaged in a, a porn addiction or compulsive porn, you know, a side note on this is not everyone's going to have a porn addiction, right? Some people have an unhealthy relationship with porn. And I think that's an important caveat to point out because classifying it as either addiction or not will keep some people from actually getting help. And it's important to make space and say, okay, it might not be completely ruining your life and you know, you're not going to go to jail for what you're doing but it might be a significant impact on your happiness. And it might be an unhealthy behavior that if you can change it, it can unlock levels of happiness and success and freedom that you haven't experienced before. So the ways that an unhealthy porn habit can impact how we relate to another human being in terms of not seeing them as a human, but seeing them as an object. There's this study that I like to point out sometimes they were doing brain scans of people engaged with pornography and they found out that the regions of the brains that were activated when they're looking at porn are the regions of the brain that are associated with viewing objects. 
not the region of the brain associated with viewing people. This is wild. Mm. So it's like when we're looking at like a cup or a table or a motorbike, we have a certain region of our brain lighting up, which is objects. And that's the same as when we're looking at porn. It's we are treating these people like objects. So that's one way. But in terms of this greater question on the role of community, you know, in Buddhism, there are what called the, the three gems, the triple gem of Buddhism. And it's the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So the Buddha is like the idea of the, the ideal of the awakened being. It doesn't necessarily mean this like God figure somewhere out in space. It's the idea of your own Buddha nature, your own awakened self, which is, you know, cultivated these qualities of, of kindness and compassion. So that's the Buddha. The Dharma is like teachings. Which is, or you, know, you can also think of it as just the truth of the way things are. And then the Sangha is, Sangha means community. And these three are the most important things, like the things that we put our refuge in. You know, the ideal of our own awakened self, the truth about the way things are, and the community that we live in. And there's this one story from Buddhism that I love. The Buddha is kind of right-hand man. His name was Ananda. It was his cousin. And one day Ananda had this great insight and he said, oh, Buddha, Buddha, I've had this great realization. Community, it must be like a half of the holy life. And the Buddha said, not so, Ananda. Community is all of the spiritual life. And how we are in connection to other people is everything. You know, that's, it's what we're here for, to be in connection. We are a social species and we need other people. And so how we're treating other people, how we're treating ourselves, and the support that we get from community is so important. We can't do any of this on our own. We need that community. I love this so much. And I, I felt it was so important just to speak into that. And the reason why, because I believe as well, it, these have been some of my hardest hitting lessons as well, not that long ago, where I started realizing I was, I was in a place where I was too ambitiously striving towards the places where I want to go, where I want to be, right? Some of those desires, of course, are, are genuine and like supportive, but at the same time, I, I noticed how I wasn't being as relational and I noticed how the reason why I'm doing it and like was falling away. And for me, that reason is to be in relationship so I can enjoy being in relationship with others so I can love fully, right? And so that was a lesson that really hit hard for me, that nothing matters at the end of the day if I can't really be relational with yeah. it, right? Yeah, and just being of service to other people, like so much of our purpose here is is to help others. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to hear when, when men have challenges, let's say they're working with you for a while and then they relapse and then... They, they fall back into the pattern. How do you navigate that? Yeah. One of the things that I, I really try to instill in the people I work with is that relapse is okay. It doesn't mean you're a complete failure and like, well, it's over now. You might as well give up and just go back to being a junkie, right? Exactly. And so it's really, it's like when you relapse, to learn how to be compassionate, and it's a balance, right? Like you don't want to relapse. If you're doing something that you know is harmful to your life, it's toxic to your relationships and your sense of well-being, obviously you don't want to just be like, oh, it's no problem at all. I can relapse whenever I want. You want to keep that commitment to, hey, I don't want to use this substance anymore. 
But when you do relapse, it's so much more important to look at how you're relating to yourself. You know, it's like, can you be kind to yourself? Can you be compassionate and say, you know, I was doing my best and I messed up. Let me start again. And so that is going to be so much more successful in the long run for keeping you on a healthy track that when you do fall off, instead of going down a downward spiral and binging for, for two weeks, you just dust yourself off and say, hey, that wasn't what I wanted to happen. Let me reconnect to my intentions, to my integrity, to my commitments. Let me start again. And of the clients I've worked with, the ones that are the most successful, they know how to get back on track after a relapse. It's the ones who have a single relapse and they tell a story about what that means. And they say, this just means I'm broken. I'm doomed forever. You know, and it's, a, it's just a story you're telling yourself. I love this. You know, this is so powerful and yeah, it kind of speaks as well into the importance of accepting it when it arises, coming into understanding this is it, you know, this is where I'm at right now. And at the same time, not losing sight of what I'm committed to, what I'm dedicated towards, you know, and, and the vision that I may have towards what I'm working with. Right. And yeah, just not allowing that necessarily to mean something about you. Right. It's kind of like this interesting thing that I see with a lot of men. It's just this huge fear of failure, right? And and what I notice is that when failure arises, that as well is you know room for inter interpretation. What is failure and what is not? But then there is this like they personalize it and they say I'm a failure, right? And then of course the shame kicks in again, right? And it's like it's it's a big topic that I feel where it's like come into a recognition yeah life is hard you know like stuff's gonna happen and, and we don't want to let ourselves off the hook i think i think you know that's the important key that you would as well address but at the same time acknowledge the pain acknowledge the moment when it arises and get back on track yeah hmm. yeah i feel like you know we're, we're slowly starting to wind down with the conversation and, and one thing that i felt I was really called to speak into with you and I feel like you've already been touching on it. It, it took you around six years to um, speak openly about the fact that you challenged with porn after you um, stopped using it. And like one thing that I really admire about you is that how vocal you are about this topic and how um, you, you've made it your mission ultimately to support men on this topic. And um, something that of course I, I took into consideration is um, that's, it, it takes courage. I'm going to say it takes courage to step into that, right? It takes courage to speak that out as your truth in the world, right? And that is, this is what you want to be of service of, right? Because I imagine that there's, there can be a lot of projections and there can be a lot of like things firing your way um, about that. Or it, at least it can be in your mind of, oh, how will, what will people think of me if I go into this direction? And I would love to hear a little bit more about um, your stance on this and the importance of maybe speaking out what it is, what's true for us and our personal truth. Yeah. I guess I would say is that for anyone listening to this who is dealing with porn, just knowing how hard it is, like I, I commend anyone who is able to to open up and be vulnerable and to admit that they need support and, and have a problem because it is so difficult. I remember... The first time I talked about it publicly was 
it was back in, I was living in Thailand. I remember I was, I was doing like a Facebook live challenge with a friend and we were trying to go live on Facebook every day for 20 days or something. We we're trying to come up with stuff to talk about. And I remember this one day thinking, okay, I'm going to talk about my porn story. And I went and sat up on the roof of my building. I was going to do the live from the roof. And I sat there for 20 minutes with my like finger, like on the, the start button, like getting ready to go. And I just sat there like, am I really going to do this? Am I really going to do this? And I did it. And it was just, it was such a wild experience to, to open up, to put down the armor and to admit this thing that for most of my life had been my biggest skeleton in the closet. It was my biggest fear that people would find out. And then there I was going live on Facebook where all my friends, all my relatives, where everyone could see me talking about how I was addicted to porn. And it was terrifying. Um, but I remember doing it and feeling like this huge weight being lifted because it's when you're walking around with a, a secret, it's so painful because there's this fear of being found out. Like if people knew the truth, no one would love me. And what a, a gift of freedom it is to, to let go of that. You can walk around and be like, people know. People know everything. There's nothing I need to hide. And so for me, it's like that was the start of a, of a long journey. Now, I would say now it's less of a courageous thing. Like when I say, yeah, you know, I work in porn addiction. I used to be addicted to porn. I wouldn't call that a courageous thing because there's no fear about it anymore. Like there's still a little, there are moments where it's a little bit of an edgy thing for me, but for the most part, I'm just like, yeah, I was addicted to porn. I think it would be harder if I was still addicted to porn and going through the addiction, harder to admit that. Mm. Um, but just for anyone listening, like just knowing how hard it is, like I commend anyone who's able to be vulnerable about anything because being vulnerable, putting down the armor, putting down the armor that you've had since you were a kid is terrifying. Being that vulnerable, being that exposed is a terrifying thing to do. And yet it is the, it is the path to freedom, to, to genuine freedom. Like one of the things I love about Buddhism there's this term that just speaks to me. It's unconditional freedom. It keeps coming up in all the different, like the, the suttas and the texts. And it's like unconditional freedom, which is like a freedom that is, it doesn't matter what condition, whether there's pleasure or pain, whether things are going the way you want or not, whether people like you or don't like you, you are unconditionally free wherever you go. And the promise of unconditional freedom, that's, we've talked about like our transformative moments and when you realize what you really want. And for me, what I realized I wanted is like deep freedom, freedom from fear, freedom from shame, freedom from craving. Again, for me, craving was this, this deep suffering. Cause it was like, I want this thing and to be free from that. And then the question is like, okay, what's on the other side of free of of craving, it's like, oh, contentment, you know, equanimity, patience, love, connection, all these beautiful things. And that's like what I wanna try to bring out into the world is like, hey, there's like, there's more to life than just money and validation and approval and success. It's like, there are things that genuinely are like leading to that sense of inner peace and inner well being. And so, yeah, letting go of shame, it's it's a long journey, but it's 
it's the pathway to unconditional freedom. Yeah. Thank you, brother. I, I love hearing this and love as well, this, this compassionate, loving approach that you have towards, you know, this topic and the men that you work with. And it's really admirable to see that. And for me, it was just really interesting as well, as well for my own, you know, personal interest, because like, I've always been really interested in mythology and I as well love the work of Joseph Campbell, who came up with the hero's journey. And he has this quote that I'm going to paraphrase, but the cave that you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek. Right. And so it's, it's always so interesting as well to see in my own personal life that my biggest pain points, my biggest wounds, those are the places, you know, that I'm being asked to go, that I'm being called to, to bring out and to, to be of service of. And that's where I find most meaning. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's just interesting. And as, as you say, initially there can be that terrifying fear, right? But uh, there is something beautiful that can really unfold from that. Yeah. I mean, so much of this work, whether it's porn addiction or the work you're doing with men, learning how to turn towards the shadow, learning how to turn towards the darkness, the, the fears, the, whatever is scaring us and learning how to turn towards it with openness and acceptance is a key to a lot of it. I remember I was doing, um, I was on an ayahuasca retreat in Peru and my intention going into it was like, okay, I know I'm going to see some dark things, like some memories, some images, like some dark energies. And my intention was just like, can I learn to love the demons that come? Like these demons need love too. And that is it's such, it's like a, impenetrable armor almost that like it can be a, a guiding force wherever you go like if you can learn how to love the darkness nothing can touch you you know if you can really make space for that i love it i love it jeremy we're going to be winding down now but uh, i would love to hear where can our listeners find you yeah probably my podcast is the best so unhooked uh, you can get it on all the all the major platforms um Instagram, I'm, I'm on there sometimes. YouTube, not so much, but mm -hmm. probably the podcast is the best place. Cool. Anything you want to direct our listeners to, whether it's programs or offerings? Uh, coming up soon, we will be restarting the Unhooked Recovery group coaching program. So if you're interested in, in getting support, um, I, I also offer one-on-one -on -one coaching. So that's always available depending on my availability. Um, but a group coaching thing, which is a bit more accessible, is going to be coming up soon. So definitely... Um, plug yourself in on my podcast. I'll be announcing it all there. Beautiful. I love hearing that. All right, brother. I got one closing question for you. Uh, as you know, this podcast is called The Heart of Man. And um, what really inspired me as well to speak into that is, of course, my own personal journey of, of really discovering, you know, the, the truth in the core of my own heart and, you know, wanting to bring listeners on um, to find a deeper understanding of what it moves them at their core. So as a final question, and love for you just to maybe answer in one to two sentences, but what enlivens your heart and what drives you at your deepest core? I think vulnerable connection, like putting down, putting down the mask, putting down the facade and being real, like heart to heart, you know, like those are the moments that, that always touch me the most when you, let go of fear and you just express yourself and you're, you're really there with another person. Um, 
that and then being of service. Like there's this quote from from Ram Dass, I think, that we're all just walking each other home. And I love that. You know, this this ayahuasca retreat I was on that I mentioned, there was this moment where there were seven ceremonies over 14 days. It was very intense. And I remember on the third ceremony, I had the most terrifying, it, it was a, a dark night of the soul kind of thing. And I was in panic the whole time. It was just a very intense night for me. And I remember at the end, this this brother kind of was there and we were kind of ending at the same time. It was maybe two in the morning or something. And we were in the Maloka and we were going to walk back to our rooms together. And we were like, he just turned to me and said, hey, do you want to walk back together? And it was this feeling of kind of companionship and safety and like, hey, we're walking together. That, I mean, it's making me tear up right now just thinking about it, but I felt so, um, it was a really meaningful moment to feel like I had that support. So that's what really drives me. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Thank you. Really appreciate your vulnerability, your ability to um, just share yourself so openly. And uh, yeah, for all the listeners, um, I thank you guys for coming online today. Um, as always, if you have any questions, if you want to share your lessons and your insights, um, I'd love to hear about those. And until next time, much love. Thank you for listening to this episode. Your time and attention is truly appreciated. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe to stay tuned for my upcoming episodes. And in case you know somebody who would find this episode helpful, I encourage you to pay it forward. Finally, if you've personally been receiving value from the show, one way you're able to support this podcast is by leaving a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Not only does this help more people find the show, but it also supports me in bringing more incredible guests on for the future. I'm your host, Alex Lehman, and until next time, signing off.